It's the NFL preseason. Check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you need fantasy rankings, we've got our rankings and sleepers at fantasyfootball.theringer.com. So come listen to Danny Heifetz, Craig Horlbeck, and me, Danny Kelly, on the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem. Of a detour. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he knows real Z's move in silence. It's Andy Greenwald! Z's. Oh, I know who you're talking about. Talking about Big Dave. Andy, it's a huge day in the town. And while I am in one sense talking about Matt Bellany's podcast, I'm talking about Hollywood. And there's really nobody better to comment on this momentous day in Hollywood as yeah. we wait these Warner Brothers earnings calls and finding out what's going on with HBO Max and what happened to Batgirl is a 44-year-old man in his mother's home in Philadelphia weighing in on this. So I'm so glad I can join you today. It's not just that, buddy. It's like... We surveyed the landscape and we were like, okay, let's see. Let's see. What's what's cooking? What's cooking in Hollyweird today? We're like, oh, big news. Big news dropping. Seismic shifts potentially in the streaming landscape. What time is that dropping? Ooh, 4 Eastern? <laughs> nah. That's Miller let's, time out here. Come on now. <laughs> let's, let's do our best Jackie Harvey and the Onion, the outsider's view, and just, just, just you know, make some uh, suppositions early. And so then we we've actually got a lot of other good stuff. Today we have too. a, a packed show. So we, we want to talk a little bit about what's going on with Warner HBO Max. We want to talk a little bit about the first two episodes of Reservation Dogs, which dropped this week, episode uh, season two, and then of course, you know it's industry season, so we had to get the bad boys back. Uh, Mickey Down and Conrad K joined us again to talk about the first episode of season two of Industry, their approach to making Industry this year. And just what we can expect from the rest of the season. I think we're going to have Mickey and Conrad on a couple of times over the course of the season. So we're really excited to have that, to have that dialogue and see where that dialogue takes us. You know, I'm going to hold space for that conversation. Let's hold space for David Zaslav because he's he's out here with a, a corn husker. Is that what they do when they husk? They they've got like a scythe. Wow. You know, that that's also what people tune into this podcast for for a agricultural metaphor. Jew <laughs> in the east side of Hollywood. Just dropping Nebraska knowledge. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> here's what you do. You take the seeds, you put them in the ground. <laughs> and then they, the children of the corn, they come and they take it out. That's uh, Andy, so there's a couple of different ways to talk about this. There is a okay. macro Hollywood streaming wars, how we consume content now conversation that's happening because in case people don't know who are listening to this podcast, there's been a lot of rumblings in advance of this Warner call that's going to happen this afternoon. I suppose if HBO Max somehow gets shot out into space, we can come back and do a topper for this podcast. But as of right now, the idea is that there, there will likely be some restructuring going on at this relatively new company that is Discovery HBO. 
right? That that that, that they might Discovery Warner, yeah. Discovery Warner, Warner and Media that, Discovery, whatever. And that there might be some sort of merging of two streaming services between Discovery Plus and HBO Max. That there might be some layoffs made because of redundancies between the two companies. That some people may have noticed that some shows that were available on HBO Max seem to be disappearing. That some movies that were original HBO Max or Warner Originals put on HBO Max seem to be disappearing from the service. That's weird. I think that that's like a whole thing of like, what are we doing with this content? Like I've seen a couple of really interesting threads about from showrunners and from creators uh, on Twitter talking about like, this is really precarious if you make something and then all of a sudden the digital parent of this company, of, of your thing decides it goes away. And honestly, I'm talking to somebody about that right now, right? Yeah, I don't know what the future for the TV show I made is. I don't know where it will be, if people will be able to see it. I don't know if it's just going to turn into a pumpkin. And I don't right. mean the holiday perennial, it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, which is available to stream. It is a real point of conversation with people that you'd better get a physical copy of the thing you made and have it in your home because this idea that, oh, I'll just live on streaming, that's not really the case as we are learning. I think there's a bunch of different ways into this story, and I think probably the best way is to just go macro to start, Mm -hmm. which is to say, for people who haven't been paying attention, David Zaslav is the CEO of Discovery, which is a very successful suite of networks and brands, including... um, you know, like the uh, the big one recently is the Magnolia Channel, which was in the yes. news today, right? And um, today there was Discovery, a press release saying that the Magnolia Channel would be airing or putting some of its content on HBO Max, which kind of goes against the idea that HBO Max was imminently going to yes. be shuttered. So he has taken over this new company, and and there's been a lot of rumors about what's going on behind the scenes and about how that culture fit is going to happen. Now, this is not a new story in Hollywood in the era of major corporate mergers, right? There was a similar conversation when John Stanky and them Texas boys took over HBO and them boys. with AT&T, and what was, good, what was it going to mean and what was going to happen? And I guess it meant Game of Thrones was on people's cell phones for a minute, and then Richard Plepler left his job, and then basically it was business as usual with HBO, and they launched... Um, what has turned into a pretty successful streaming service. So you have to definitely take a lot of this news through the lens of the Hollywood community isn't necessarily a big fan of David Zaslav, not for not for reasons of having worked with him or knowing him, but he is an East Coast executive without the creative background, like he didn't do development of series at CBS for a while before switching and like going up the ladder. So he's coming in to this world. And there's a lot of protectiveness about what that means and what his point of view is. It does, it has always seemed like an inevitability that if you have a large corporate media company, you should make all of the corporate products and media products available together. So again, they shuttered CNN plus basically as it launched. About 10 days after. Yeah. Inevitably, you know, the, um, Back, back episodes of Tony Bourdain's Parts Unknown were going to be streamable somewhere. And it was announced today they will be available on Discovery. Again, it doesn't make sense long-term to silo those two things away from each other. Like no. in, the, in the realm of these worlds, like you should be able to watch episodes of Industry and then watch um, uh, Parts Unknown or any other product that's in that world. So that that that... For the consumer, all of that long-term makes sense and is probably uh, inevitable. That said, there were some confusing 
moves behind the scenes leading up to this big investor call today, right? Like at the same time, I know this anecdotally and personally and just from talking to people here, like at the same time this summer when all the stories were coming out, like Joe Adalian's piece in Vulture and New York Magazine crowning HBO Whereas, like, Max. HBO as, Max is, that, is, the, is the best streaming service for the money, right? Behind the scenes was a, a different story was being told, not necessarily that it was a bad service or that it was a bad place to work, but there was a lot of stuff just vanishing or deals going away or, well, this was greenlit, but now we have to reconsider it. And again, was this normal new boss comes in, looks under the hood, makes some budgetary reprioritizations? Yeah, that's probably normal. The extent of it, unclear. Yeah. At the same time, one of the biggest things Zaslav has done is re-up our, our boy, the watch's number one or number two fan, Casey Ploys, chairman of HBO, to a big, big multi-year deal, which would suggest the opposite of what people's fears were in the town, right? That like he recognizes the heater that HBO has been on and, you know, ensuring stability and good creative relationships, all of that. So that's part, that's some of the backstory here. The first dominoes then started to fall this week that led to this call. And again, it was important that you mentioned the thing about creators being like, my show is vanishing Mm -hmm. because- that kind of fear is real, but it's also fueling the Twitter froth that usually does not come before an earnings call on a Thursday afternoon yeah. in August. The the sort of the chatter about what is happening right now is related to something that that is the, the headline of this whole thing, which is essentially the announcement that Batgirl, a ninety yes. million dollar movie made by the directors of the Bad Boys remake and several episodes of Miss Marvel was going to be canceled. Not straight to videoed, not delayed, not we'll put it out in theaters and see what happens. It is gone. A movie starring... uh, Leslie Grace. Leslie Grace. Michael Keaton, apparently. Had Michael Keaton reprising his role as Batman in it is just gone. And it's when, you know, it doesn't take a genius. I mean, every article about this has said... This is for tax purposes. That if this this movie never comes out, if it never seems the light of day, it's $90 million production so far could be considered a write-down. Now, you go cue the Seinfeld scene that I saw many people tweeting yesterday where it's like Kramer and Jerry talking about they just write this off or write it down. And Jerry's like, what's a write-down? And he's like, I don't know. But they do. And that's why they write it down. It's like, I don't know how not having a movie that's already cost you $90 million yes. not out in the world works. I do kind of wonder whether or not people at Warner's have been taking a look at what's been happening at the box office this year where it's like, oh, wow. So it seems like people are going to the movies again. Now, they may not consider Batgirl movie theater ready, but they may also be like, why would we just put this on a service when we don't think it's going to add value, a subscriber value to the service? I think there's at least four pieces of play here that need to be examined and treated kind of credibly. One, this was clumsy. There's no version of this where this wasn't clumsy and deeply offensive to creators who spent a ton of time and heart and energy and enthusiasm making something. That sucks. Um, you know, there were stories about how the directors found out at one of their weddings, you know, that one of the, one of the guys was getting married and they found out like minutes before this was announced, you know, Leslie Grace has now made a statement about how, you know, about how upset she is about all of this. People really work hard to make things. And the thought that it's just going to vanish because of a corporate strategy is, is devastating. And so we need to like, honestly be respectful of that. Another piece of this though, that's worth considering is 
it's not uncommon for when people take over something to repudiate the previous regime strategy. And Jason Kalar, who was the relatively briefly, but very uh, significantly was the chair of Warner Media before the Discovery thing. He's the one who implemented the strategy of we're going to flood the streaming service with content to make it competitive, mm-hmm. which arguably worked. This time, a year or two ago, we were talking about his incredibly clumsy, the town hates him decision to put all of Warner's theatrical slate which onto included the streaming Tenet service. Tenet and Dune, yeah. And the ripple effect of that was Christopher Nolan picked up his atomic ball and took Oppenheimer elsewhere out of his longtime home at Warner's. Denis Villeneuve is still salty about it. People are, were angry. But it worked for Jason Kalar's corporate goals. It put HBO Max on the map and got people watching it and talking about it. So that was successful. The new regime is looking at a different landscape that you alluded to, which is, okay, so they spent 80 to now $90 million on a movie that's essentially a tweener. And what that means is it's we'll never know. It's totally opaque. But I think it's probably credible, the reports that we've read, that the difference in terms of like new subscriptions and new eyeballs for a $80 million movie on a streaming service versus a 30 or $40 million movie is negligible. Except by negligible, I mean that's $40 million more million to spend. Right. So $90 million sounds like a lot of money, but that's also like half of what theatrically released action movies tend to cost these days. If that. So- if that, exactly. So they have a movie that's a tweener. It's not. It's too expensive to be a streaming original, and it's too cheap to get seats, to get people's asses in seats in the movie theater. And so it seems like they discussed amping it up. But then what are they doing? The, there is the tax piece of it that you're pointing to, and I think it's probably credible. But there's another piece, too, which nobody wants to talk about. And I don't mean it to be like judgmental or to, to, to take away from the, the, the legitimate anguish and hurt that the filmmakers and actors and everyone in the crew are feeling. But if, if the movie was amazing, it would be released. You know what I mean? Like, it would be. I'm not saying it has to be a masterpiece. I'm not saying it's outwardly bad. Well, this is the thing is that, like, I don't know if you've a, seen, it, like, there, there's a lot of really shitty stuff out. That's what I'm trying yeah, to understand is that, like, it, they, they, somewhere somebody did the accounting or the math and was like, this movie is basically worth more to us for if it vanishes than if we put it on the streaming service with like a one day announcement, you know, that it won't draw in new subscribers. Now, this leads to a whole other parallel conversation about the kind of devil may care we can have seven different realities in DC this, this and whether or not that is coherent and whether or not people are kind of like, I don't know what the fuck you're doing. Like there was reports in this Batgirl stuff about Michael Keaton was supposed to be an Aquaman too. And there was a test screening and people were like, why is Michael Keaton in this movie? And so now they're just putting Ben Affleck back in there, even though Affleck had like fully basically like hung it up. So the sort of yes. like, wild crazy times going on with that ip that they were like oh well we could just do whatever and some of it can live here and then james gunn can have this playground and this can be over here and there can be four batmans and six harley quins and four jokers maybe people are like i don't get this i think we are reaching multiversal fatigue which is definitely (laughs) bad news for marvel (laughs) exactly But it's not just the idea of a multiverse story, which again, I think, and I'm not just trying to credit Marvel because I generally generally like their stuff more than DC, 
But there does seem to be a slight method to their multiverse of madness in that they are putting up Jonathan Isaacs as um, Jonathan Majors, I'm sorry, as Kang. And like all of this is his Machiavellian doing. And so there's going to be some resolution at the end of it, whether it's Secret Wars or whatever it ends up looking like. Right. The DC flood the zone strategy, which was at times brilliant because Joker got nominated for an Oscar, but honestly came from total disorganization at the top. It wasn't, they didn't go in being like, we should have nine flashes. They were just like, we need to compete. We need to, we have a tentpole film slotted into the release schedule without a script yet. You know what I mean? So it doesn't, I I think it doesn't work from the top down. And what I mean by that is back to Zaslav, who buys this company. And as far as multiplex stuff goes, franchise is still the name of the game. And the crown jewel of the Warner empire is still the DC universe. Like that's the one that they have, right? That's the one that can generate all these different shows on all these different platforms and, and get people into theaters if done right. And he's looking at it and he's just like, this isn't going to work. If we have like, like, like well, classes it's, of and it's too expensive if it's not going to work. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the barrier for entry is too high now. I mean, we're learning on with the, with the, the Disney plus stuff too, with like star Wars and Marvel, like, we may be saturated, you know, and there's there's value in stepping back, but 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 we don't need to go in that direction. But it is just to say, the Batgirl thing, it's it's probably too much, and, and they should, you know, and and it does ultimately dilute the brand. So, this may sound like we were kind of like, it doesn't even matter if if like Batgirl is good or bad, you know. The, I think the yes. the point is that it's being treated as a line item in the budget of a huge conglomerate. Mm-hmm. As it always has, going back pretty much to even the golden age of Hollywood that we talk about. But speaking of the golden age of Hollywood, here's a personal anecdote that I think illustrates what I see as the more existential issue uh, facing us right now, which is also a personal one. So the other night, I was like trying to find something to watch with my mom, and we had just done the There Will Be Blood rewatchables a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. and in the research, Paul Thomas Anderson talks a lot about how he was watching Treasure Sierra Madre all the time while he was making that movie. I was like, you know what? It's been like a good 10, 15, if not 20 years since I've seen Treasure of Sierra Madre. That must be somewhere at my fingertips, seeing as how Mm -hmm. I have subscriptions to seven, eight services at this point. And so uh, before I came to Philly, I Googled that and it was on HBO Max. I was like, great. I love that they have these Turner Classic movies in this catalog. I love that. That's a really awesome like little feather to have in the cap. So when I'm going to get home and I'm going to watch this with my mom because I know she loves Humphrey Bogart movies. I get back. I fire up HBO Max. It's not there in search. I look at my computer. The other day, my computer said, that's on HBO Max. It's no longer in HBO Max. That's not a big deal. Sometimes you would go to the video store and you would say, oh, I wanted to take this movie out and they don't have it. So I'll have to find something else. I was mm-hmm. able to find something else. The annoying part was that I didn't have to pay for the right to go into the video store. You know what I mean? And I think that what we're kind of approaching right now is we had this brief moment. We were like, wow, this is really cool. Like all TV and all movies ever are going to be available to us pretty much at the touch of a finger. And we'll always have something to watch and we'll never be bored. And like, there will always be something to talk about. And now I think that, uh, somehow the act of watching movies and television has just been made more complicated, more expensive and less rewarding, you know? And when you kind of get into this zone where like you develop a fandom of people who want to see 
Batgirl and Barbara Gordon come to life in a movie or because they've been told that like DC has all these plans. So they're going to subscribe to this service and that service and make sure that they're a part of it and read about it and care about the rumors and all this stuff. And then they're like, you know what? Actually, it's less expensive to just fuck you guys over and put this away, you know? And it's the same thing for people who are like, I'm going to subscribe to this because it seems like they have a stable library of some of my favorite films. And I understand that these deals are complicated. I understand the fucking computer wasn't invented when John Huston made that movie, much less do they have like an idea of like where Treasure of Sierra Madre will live in perpetuity digitally. But it is frustrating as just a person with a finite amount of money (laughs) and a finite amount of time to constantly be running in circles because of the machinations of these companies and as you alluded to, like shit is just disappearing from HBO max so far. It's nothing that I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe that this is that I can't watch camping again, but that is annoying and that is weird. And it is strange. It's to me, it's really um, best exemplified by the two emails I got last week where I got an email. I don't remember what day it was, but it was like from your friends at HBO max soon to be laid off. No, it was like from your friends at HBO max. And it was like, Treasure your memories at Hogwarts one last time. Harry, Hermione, Ron, and the gang will be leaving HBO Max, so don't forget to watch your favorite movies of the Potterverse. And then the next day I get an email from my friends at Peacock, and they're like, buckle up, wizards. Here we fucking go. Grab your owls and wands. The Potterverse is back home on Peacock. That's because these two services trade this enormously valuable franchise Back and forth every eight months, like the what was the the cup in Philadelphia? You know, like when the local teams play, like it, it's, it's it's like the puck in regatta, right? Like it's it's absurd, but that is the world we're living in at the moment. While this stuff is getting worked out in real time, and to the larger point, I think one of the reasons why we felt generally confident doing this podcast and starting this conversation today, before we know a lot of the way this is going to shake out practically, is just because. For all we're talking about, they lost Harry Potter. They lost Treasure of the Sierra Madre. They lost American Pickle. But HBO Max is still a very successful yeah. streaming service sure. with the HBO content on it. And David Zaslav isn't dumb. Like, he's right. not going to shut it down. <laughs> I, 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 th- that's where, that's where the, the narrative kind of lost. If he now. does, though, like, we're going to, I'm cl- clipping this, and that's going to be the promo for this podcast. A million today. percent. And you yeah. can run that along with me being like, these Better Call Saul guys have no idea what they're doing. And then and that can be the attack ad on <laughs> that's me. right. When someone runs to replace me as co-host, because I believe this podcast operates like the county sheriff's office. But um, it also, and we don't even need to open this can of worms, But again, separate and apart from like hardworking people losing their jobs, hardworking people with great creative intentions, not having their visions realized or made public, which I am, I am on that side. That's the shit we we don't like. Yeah. But but when we cover the industry, all of this does seem to keep coming back to some original sins. Like what is HBO Max original programming? What is that? Right? Like it, it never made sense from the beginning and in the beginning, there was just a separate team being like, okay, uh, our buddy Patrick and Paramount, thank you for pitching us Station Eleven. HBO and HBO Max will now fight over the rights to potentially buy this series, even though we're the same company. That's how Hacks is an HBO Max show from right. Universal. What? Right. That doesn't make sense. So 
Then there was a reshuffling in the last era where Casey got control of all of it, and it seemed like things were starting to make a little more sense. We knew what HBO shows were, and we started to know what HBO Max shows were, um, and they were more things like um, Peacemaker or the upcoming Colin Farrell Penguin show. So they're the more branded, more broad shows. Genre, There's more reality yeah. shows. Selena plus Chef or whatever that show is called with Selena Gomez. Like, sure. okay, it's starting to make sense. Now, is HBO Max a good name for the service? I still don't think so. <laughs> Do I still understand, like, the giant posters, you know, for We Own the City that's just, like, streaming HBO Max and HBO Original? Okay, <laughs> sure. They're still undoing this knot. And so I wonder if... Today's announcement will be part of that. But largely speaking, hack season three is happening. You know what I mean? Like HBO shows are continuing apace. That isn't what's changing. But the way that it, but behind the the curtain, things are reshuffling and and it will play out for us over the next few months and years. It's not, I don't think it's going to be a consumer issue today. I think the issue today is going to be like, oh, Chip and Joanna Gaines are going to be on my streaming service. Yeah. Neat. I, I don't really see that, that's my prediction. But well, we'll find out. We'll we'll find out more. We'll talk about it more. By the way, programming note coming twelve minutes into this podcast, we'll probably be putting up minutes. our <laughs> twenty four baby. Uh, putting up our episode early next week. We'll be putting that up on Tuesday to respond to Monday night's Better Call Saul. So we had obviously been going pretty close to the airing uh, before, but circumstances make it so that we have to do it uh, the following day that that day. So Tuesday will be the next watch after this, and we'll also talk about the HBO stuff. Let's talk a little bit about Reservation Dogs before we get to Mickey and Conrad. I would love to. Let's talk Chris? about just regular old TV. But it's actually like TV unlike anything we have seen before. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it is. It, in some ways, it is. But it, it's really... For something that was so critically acclaimed, it seems like it's going under the radar this week. And, and I think it's going under the radar, not just because it's the dog days of summer, as opposed to the Reservation Dog days of summer, I think it's getting dinged for having a normal-ass schedule. Season one premiered a year ago. Guess what, guys? Season two. (laughs) That used to be called TV. And I get the feeling people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's been a busy year. You know what I mean? Like, you don't need to come back that fast. Guys, make time. I love this show so deeply and purely, and I admire it so much. And I feel like, for me, there is the absolute top tier of TV this year. And they've been very distinct experiences, but very um, pure. And obviously the bear is one of them. And part of the enthusiasm about the bear for me was the surprise, the thrill. Oh my God, they got, they did what? And they're doing it and the world is noticing. And that was so joyful. Another great show of the year for me was Barry, which was kind of the opposite experience, which was, oh, I don't know about this anymore. Is that still, holy shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They, jujitsued me and elevated to a place they didn't know they were capable of. Reservation Dogs, again, there's nothing traditional about the show, which is at, at once the most cinematic comedy. It's the most like lived in indie drama. It's so many things all at once. But the most traditional thing about it for me was, boy, they really figured this show out while making the first season and they were ready to go make it again. There is absolutely no drop-off. These two episodes that are available now on FX on Hulu are masterful to me. You know what I thought? Because we are talking about this after we've recorded our conversation with Mickey and Conrad. Uh And I couldn't help but notice some parallels between some of the things that they said about making Industry Season 2 and 
I think, you know, I've said, and those guys were responding to this idea that the first season was this sort of act of punkish rebellion in some ways, yep. or like kind of like flying without a map. And that ne- they were like, we realized we kind of did need some rules. Like we, to make it an effective show, we needed to have like a plot engine. And I kind of detect the same thing with Reservation Dogs, and it's a good thing. You know, I detect some really like subtly expert, like even just with with uh, with Willie Jack addressing the camera head on to mm. start the first episode and kind of do a recap. That's like just a stylish, yeah, effective way to ground the audience and lay out a menu for you about where you're going. You know what I mean? Like just the way in which the efficiency that now essentially this, these first two episodes, I, I think you could generally call one big episode in some ways, Mm -hmm. but it was just, you could tell that it still had a little bit of its wandering spirit. It still had a little bit of its indie like kind of sensibility, but it also had the like, Hey, we're going to have Jackie on this show now as a major character. You know, like this is how we like kind of bring somebody from the background to the foreground and give them something of their own storyline. Do you know what it, you know what I'm saying it, about? It, it, yeah, but it's also like an incredible victory lap to start the season with it. You know, as you said, she's talking to camera and we get a montage of where things have gone in the relatively short amount of time that's elapsed since the end of last season where Brownie like turns away the tornado and um, uh, Laura Dan and, and Jackie run away to California. Right. But all these other little details, like the Kirk Fox character has received a horse in the tornado. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's so funny and it's so rich. And you're like, oh my God, West Studi's on this show. Like all of these great, great performers and the characters and people who I've never seen before last season. And I can't wait to see them again and be back in this world with their interconnecting storylines and just deadpan reactions. And it's so, for me, I mean, it was joyful to be back. But again- I get the sense that in addition to, you know, leaning into some structure and building on the foundation that was there before, Sterling Harjo is just like, oh, they, they get my jokes. The things that my friends and I think are funny. The people, the viewers will also like. funny now too. Yeah. So now we're just going to let it ride. You know what I mean? And I don't feel any, and I don't know if there were, or if it was just my, clutching the brakes a little bit because I wasn't sure to give into the show yet last season when I didn't know what it was, but like I see it is, it just flows the way this, these two episodes particularly can just meander from truly absurdist comedy that it makes me laugh out loud to a surprising left turn resolution to the let's steal the truck full of flame and hot snacks that started the season. Mm-hmm. I started the series like that was deeply touching. Bear is depressed in these two episodes. Yeah. And the show is just like, yep, one of our main characters is just depressed and alone. And that's there's space for that in this world in such a profound way. Like the casting, Josh Fadham, you know, last scene of Better Call Saul doing a very strange guest turn as a not maybe I, we don't really know if he's a good Samaritan, but it's just weird and funny. Like I I I don't know. I just feel like this show is magical. It makes me really happy to be back in it. It's do it's it's executing on on a level higher than almost anything else on TV. We'll talk about it more in depth. Uh, you know, it's it's a good time right now because we do have a couple of really really great shows on between Saul and Industry and Reservation Dogs, and it's nice nice to have these kinds of like more human dramas before we get to Dragons and Rings. So, oh my God, Dragons <laughs> and Rings and She Hulks. And She-Hulks, yeah. Don't don't criticize the CGI of She-Hulk, man. I would never. 
Uh, never. Let's get into our interview with Conrad Kay and Mickey Down, the writers, the creators of industry, some of our favorite possible guests. We have been adoring the season so far. Andy and I have only, I guess we should say, we've only seen two. The second episode is coming on Monday. I will be candid and say there is some like allusions to things that happen in two, but I don't think that there are any specific spoilers. But you know, if you really want to, feel free to leave this interview until Monday night. I, yeah, I, I would say we don't really talk specifically. I don't think it's a spoiler just to, to describe the emotional sensations of something that happens in episode two. But you know, your mileage may vary on that. And um, it yeah. was important. It felt important to talk about it at least a little bit in terms of what their goals were for the season. Because this, guys, sorry, we usually don't do this. Second episode's incredible. So, Second episode's great. Um, okay, exciting. so let's get into our interview with Mickey and Conrad, and then Andy and I will be back Tuesday to talk about Better Call Saul and who knows the future of Hollywood. I'm talking about Sandman next week. I don't know where you're going to be. <laughs> I'm ready. I waited 30 years for that. Bye, guys. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy, and right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Mickey and Conrad, the creators of industry, the writers of industry, they're joining us again on The Watch. I think this is now... Appearance three, although it feels like it's more than that. So they're entering the S mail zone of watch guest spots. We had you guys on to talk about GameStop. We've had you guys on to talk about season one of industry. It's amazing to be talking to you about season two of industry, which came back with a bang this week. Andy and I talked about it on Monday's pod, but we're so glad to have you guys back on. What's up, guys? Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having us back. We love this show. I, I, I was texting Andy saying, like, hearing you guys talk about it. Not even in such in such nice terms. I mean, like, I can hear you slagging it off for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> <laughs> Hearing that you say that you like it is even better. But it's so funny. It's like obviously we were massive fans of the show before we started coming on every week. But um, it was uh, it was it's like hearing some of your favorite sort of characters from the show talking about you. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, I want to know which character from the show I am. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's great. Thank you. What was what was incredible is leading up to season two. Mickey, you and Conrad had very different ways of anticipating and speaking about it because we, Chris and I both have talked with you off pod, offline, and in the buildup, you were working on it, you were in production, you were in post. One of you, I won't say which, you can out yourself, was like, you're going to fucking love it. And the other one was like, ooh, hope you like it. <laughs> now, does that, you, you can you tag yourself in that comment 
and then maybe update us on how you're feeling. I don't know. Some, I, I, I don't know which one was which to you. Oh, interesting. Because sometimes I'm one of those and Conrad's the other. Uh, it depends where how close we were to Premier. Because I feel like as I we get closer to the Premier, Conrad gets more confident. I get less. Yeah, it's a pretty cyclical thing. I think we. Um, I don't know. We had. I mean, we guys have talked to you about this a little bit, and we, you know, we had a lot of. I guess we, having watched season one come out in the world, you know, we were pretty surprised with the response to it and surprised the upside in terms of the way people liked it. And we just felt that we could, we, we were very sure about the things that worked about the show and didn't work so well. And I think we were pretty harsh critics and we wanted to diagnose all the things that we could, you know, we could do better. Um, and I feel like for better or worse, I think, I think a lot of what season, you know, you can, you can only hope that it goes so far as to your own kind of main mind, Nikki's collective imagination, what ends up on screen. And I feel like, you know, there was that, there's a famous quote that, you know, if you've got like 60% of what you wanted on the screen and you succeeded. And I feel like we've done more than that with season two. So like we were, we were sort of very confident. I was at least in this instance, quite confident for it to, for it to air and quite excited to be honest. Well, there's like, there's another famous, like I guess quote a cliche which is like you wait your whole life to make your first album and then the problem is you have to get up the next day and do it again and I was wondering you know I mean part of what I think captured a lot of people's imaginations about the show was this feeling like it was coming from this incredibly unique pair of voices I guess unique and pair is not the same thing but this incredibly original place and that you guys poured yourself into this show so what was it like to go and reload and do it again it's interesting that, that this sort of unique compare thing because I feel like me and Connor have such a symbiotic relationship. And I remember we always say this, but like we, we do think with one head almost. <laughs> like we almost, to, to the detriment of the writer's room or other people in the writer's room sometimes, because I'll say, I'll start saying a sentence and Connor and I will finish it. And then, or I'll say, you know what? And then Connor will go, Connor and I will go, yeah, 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 definitely. And then everyone else in the writer's room will be like, what do they just do? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, yeah it, I mean, as Conrad said, we didn't know how it was going to land. We were so excited when it came out and got the reception it did. And then when we got the backing from HBO to do a second one, we were just like, we have to leave everything on the field now. Is that the right metaphor? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Doing great. For everything at the wall, whatever you want to use. But yeah, I mean, we just really wanted to just do it again and level up as much as we possibly could. And as you know, as as being given opportunity, we, opportunity, we just thought there was no point doing it if we weren't. And and yeah, I, I, I do think, going back to your previous question about how confident we were, I mean, I, this time I was, I was confident that me and Conrad delivered something that we were really happy with. I didn't know whether that was going to, you know, it was going to be a success for anyone else, but um, it was enough for us, quietly, that we had done something we were proud of. Uh, Andy, you said, you said yes when you were reviewing the show yesterday, you, you said that the vibe was immaculate or whatever, and we felt like the the first season was very much a question of that kind of raw energy. Like I think Chris, you said that it was like a bit of a punk rock thing, and it yeah. was kind of we were la- we were allowed into the studio and like you could smash around on the instruments to see what happened. I think we 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 felt like what the show really lacked was a very good story engine, and and mm. it had it had good feel, it had good characterization. Like the interactions felt not, it was a good world to hang out in, and that can be enough, obviously, to keep people coming back. But we were like if we could marry this to a proper narrative engine that kept people coming back week to week and had stronger episodic hooks and didn't lose any of the stuff that we liked about the show, which was the kind of hangout quality, some of the more esoteric observations, the references, all of that stuff that we, you know, and the soundtrack, all that stuff that made people sit up and take notice in the first place. You know, we had, we had another showrunner come and join us on season, on this season called Jamie O'Brien, who 
was far more experienced than us and was just really good at, at holding us to account on certain rigors about episodic storytelling. And I, you know, me and Mickey, are, and I know you guys have the same belief that this whole idea of eight hours of film when you're working in TV makes absolutely no sense. You know, you've got to be telling distinct hour long units of story in a serialized manner. And I think she holds us, she basically held us to a higher standard with that stuff. And I think it helped the show tremendously. Can you talk specifically about that in terms of, you know, coming out of the first season, I wondered, w- there must've been things left on the whiteboard or left in your own experiences, like whether, you know, the whole, you know, 32nd floor or whatever it is of private wealth management is suddenly open now to Yaz. And like, I imagine that's something that you guys were aware of and found space for in a second season. But I was wondering about the balance between like big ideas, character things that you knew you wanted to do versus that granular, okay, in, and I don't, I'm not going to spoil anything. We're going to air this before the phenomenal second episode um, comes out. But like in the second episode, it was noteworthy in a way that I really appreciated that there is a gesture, like a reaching a hand across the table that is a repeated hook to that episode if you know what I mean. So I'm wondering more about the granular episodic decision-making that you're talking about being pushed to in this season. The sort of textual writing that me and Conrad love, and I think sort of the thing that we started doing when we started working together, I mean, we, we wanted to keep as much of that as possible. But again, like we did so much of that in season one so that, um, at the detriment of any kind of noticeable story. And I mean, I, I think it was, I can't remember which, who it was, Conrad, but an executive at HBO, I think it was Amy Hodge, who actually is, she wasn't at HBO, but now she is. She was said that we were, what did she say? In- incredible interior designers, but we were we didn't know how to build a house. Um, which was great because <laughs> we were we were literally like, okay, well let's 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 spend you know six or seven months choosing the faucets, while you know the actual structure yeah. of the house actually <laughs> is going to fall down. Um, and that's what we, and we were obsessed. We were obsessed with imagery. We were obsessed with like dialogue. We were obsessed with characterization. We were obsessed with reference. And we weren't able to turn, turn that into eight hours of storytelling. And I think like, you know, in the film, you can get away with vibe. You can get away with atmosphere. You can get away with hangout. In a novel, you can get away with style. You can get away with atmosphere. But I feel that I, I honestly generally feel, and this is something that we actually had to learn. And I think it's actually, it's actually a, a product of, 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 of experience and also of, of, Getting a little bit, get, get a little bit more humility, realizing that actually, eight hours of of, of storytelling is uh, is very very difficult, and, uh, <laughs> and you need more than one other person to help you do it. Definitely, another. I mean, another rule that we we told ourselves in season two was there's no. I mean, this is a, maybe another tortured sports thing, but there's no reason why we can't pitch our fastball all the time, and it's not like we we thought about that. We were like, oh, you know, a lot of seasons of TV they think about their, they, they don't think about having the energy of a finale in their first three or four episodes. It feels like, oh, we need to build to something. Whereas we set up, I mean, without any spoilers, we set up the sort of Harper-Eric axis, which was the key axis of season one. Mm-hmm. We were like, uh, along with Harper and Yasmin, I guess, why don't we just expedite that story as quickly as we can and make sure that, you know, and make sure the first three episodes feel like each one is going at 100 miles an hour. And, and, and almost our rule in the writer's room was let's burn through this story as quickly as possible and not serve it for the end of the season because that stuff will come. But we, it just, it really served the dynamism and the pace of the show to, to put those big story temp poles in terms of big seismic things in the universe of the show happening as quickly as possible, as early as possible in the season. I, you know, I, I, I have to just, I have to call out, sorry. It's just, it's a, it's a legendary flex. I thought eating a popsicle on the podcast was the <laughs> pinnacle, but now you guys individually dropping a baseball and an American football analogy in the first yeah, 10 and minutes. It's also like, Conrad, if you just want to be like, we can't do TV, like Marcelo Bielsa coaches a football team, I'll get it. You know, we, we can do it's the a safe space for some of you. 
Guys, this is the ringer, isn't it? I mean, yeah. what is, I mean like, <laughs> no, you're doing great. It worked. They both played. I'm just, I got to call it out. Mickey, you were talking about the humility that you were sort of learning. And one of the things I've noticed, I've, and again, Andy and I aren't going to spoil anything that happens in episode two, but I, I've obviously noticed like a theme of surrogate parents kind of emerging from this season or, or people creating these sort of surrogate parent relationships, sometimes which cross lines with uh, different characters. And I was curious whether or not there was any like TV writer stuff, not that you learned, but that you were like, oh, this is why people do this. Like, this is why people might like kind of like follow this character into this corner or like put these two people together in a car or something like that. Because it was something that I feel like it, it wasn't something that I felt like the first season lacked, but I do feel like in this, the first few episodes of the second season, you really start to see like it's it's like the artistry of it. Like you're actually like, you, you can make these connections between characters because you guys are being a little bit more, putting the themes a little bit more in the foreground. Was that something where you guys were like surprised to find out that certain tropes or certain ideas were actually quite useful to use? Absolutely. I mean, just like you can, we can hang all the stuff we love doing, which is the texture and the characterization and all the references and stuff. We can hang that on a, you know, a more traditional storytelling. And we, we thought that, that those two things were anathema to one another. And we actually realized they're actually totally linked and that they're actually very important and that you can actually tell a quite simple story, hang all the complexity off the end of it, and it feels like it's very complex. Um, I mean, we went back and watched those episodes of Mad Men and we realized that they, these are very, very simply told stories, but in a sort of pretty luscious way. And we thought, okay, well, let's, we tried to do that and then we ended up actually complicating it far more than it need, needed to be sometimes. But yeah, I feel like Jamie, honestly, Jamie O'Brien, who, who came and helped us, was just, she was, I, I think it was the fact that we had done a year already and we'd seen, we'd, we'd seen the stuff that worked in our work and she was able to have a sort of outside perspective of the stuff that worked. And she realized that yeah, this is such easy 101 screenwriting, but you know, the best stuff is the stuff that pushes the story, but also gives you the texture. And I feel like sometimes, you know, some, I mean, the best stuff does that. Sometimes you, you, you veer off into the more textual writing. Sometimes you, you hang way too much story on the scene. And, there, you know, there are a few, actually, there are, there are a few moments, even this season, where I think we smashed the, sledge, the story sledgehammer a bit too hard. Like, there are a few beats in there which I thought, oh, God, we should have really removed that. Like, personally, I think in the first episode, the end of, of this scene where, where Harper wakes up and realizes that Robert cleaned her room and has left a note for her, I, I always really fought against that note because I thought, okay, he does, he does. We don't need to know that she's going to move into Robert the next episode. It's enough that he cleaned the room. So right. stuff like that, I feel like that's you know that that's, that's those, are concession, those are concessions we make. I think sometimes. I mean, like, I, I agree with Mickey. Like, I think sometimes we went too far, and you could sort of see the narrative cogs turning a little bit too much. But yeah, sorry, Mick, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But I, I totally agree with you on that. B. Yeah, I mean, but in, in, on the other side of that, in season one, there was like a there was like a two or three page monologue from a character we've never met before called Casper talking about how he grew up in a housing estate in the Netherlands and had a Muslim family in his block. And it had absolutely no bearing on the story whatsoever. And, and we really ruled. fought for yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> we really fought for it. And we were like, this, is, this, has, this tells you everything about Casper. And HBO and the producers are producers like, who gives a fuck Who's about Casper? Casper? <laughs> 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 thought, it's really important. And just stuff like that, like, you know, we needed to have the mirror shown to us sometimes and for them to say, look, this, you're still learning how to do this. And I honestly think, I mean, that's why I get back to the um, humility thing, Chris, in that, you know, I think it's very easy to jump into this world of screenwriting, shall we say, and think, okay, well, I've seen all the things that I like. 
I see all the things I dislike. I'm sure I can do better than the things I dislike. And then realizing actually it's much harder to do it um, than we anticipated. But yeah, so yeah. I think I think there's a there's there's a youth there's there's things that people responded to in season one was the kind of the youth and the the punk thing that you guys said which was like oh this is a real fit of expression and we were kind of ma- like laying the track as we went along and it did feel a bit like that and it was slightly haphazard and I think the thing the painful lesson we learned was that as a thing I was tagging on what Mickey said but like you come in and you when you're young you're like oh we can be really iconoclastic like we're obviously the rules don't apply to us because we're so good at X Y and Z and then we learned the highway that there is in, in, in eight hours of story, those you are, you are just, you are subordinate to the rules of keeping people engaged. And they're, they're on some level, very simple story beats, but with great actors and good dialogue and good production design and good music, those things are buried. Like, and, and they're the things that, they're the things that subconsciously keep people coming back. And I think, I mean, I, I personally think it really elevated the season and, and, you know, you, you worry about seeing the seams in the work, but I just, I think, as the creators, you see the seams yourself and then hopefully an audience don't see them quite as much as you do. One of the real charms of the first season, and maybe this speaks to the kind of punk rock energy we responded to, was that not only were you guys doing this for the first time, but a lot of your cast was relatively unknown and you know, certainly it, we're not used to this level of, of a production or of exposure. When we talked to Mahala, you know, whom we adore, like she was like, this the show was me because she had not really left the country before and suddenly was living in Wales leading a television show for HBO. So that all, you know, kind of plays into the meta enjoyment of the first season because you can feel people finding themselves and realizing their abilities and it worked within the story that you were telling. And then you guys have to do it all again. So what was it like? And and not even the purpose of the question isn't like, give me, give me tea, but like in the, in the American <laughs> sense, please give me tea in the British sense whenever you invite <laughs> me. But getting the gang back together, you know, young actors who have had a journey and coming back to play these characters for a second time, that's very different than the youthful energy of like, yeah, let's give it a go. I would, I, well, I mean, the, the, my, my main takeaway from the whole creative experience was that it was, an inc- we, me and Mickey were, inc- and this, I mean, this was from the, pro- the producers all the way down the cast and crew. We had a very obviously rigorous hiring process of, of directors, DPs, and we, I think we were just far more professional. I mean, I, this just speaking for me and Mickey, we had an incredible sense of energy about the second season because not only did we feel it was a massive privilege to get to do it again, but we had the, the we had the re- very real feeling that I imagine like a sports manager gets, where they can they watch a team play and they get to basically coach that team again for a second season, and you can be like bang 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 bang. So you can, you know, it's a very as I say, I use the word before, but very diagnostic thing. So me and Mickey had this amazing amount of like, oh my god this creative energy, which actually permeated the cast. I mean, like when they were coming back, I think, you know, they obviously, we were very lucky in what a good team of people we assembled in front of the camera. But I think they, I mean, you, you can probably tell this season one, season two, they've grown in confidence and ability just by having watched themselves, which, you know, they came off a, a really high base already. But I, I don't know. I, Mick probably can speak better to this than me. My abiding sense of the whole creative process on season two, from the moment we started writing the scripts, the moment we basically finished the edit was of a very I felt like the whole thing was very communal and very everybody singing off the same hymn sheet and everybody pulling in exactly the same direction it was a very it was smooth sailing really wouldn't you say mate totally I mean as far as productions can go especially productions being shot during COVID it was it just felt like everyone was pulling in the right in the same direction constantly and we were all moving towards the same goal it really did feel like that it didn't and yeah, there was there were the normal production fires, obviously, but it just felt like every single day, it felt like we were going towards the thing we wanted to create. 
Um, and I, I, and I don't know how, I, you know, me, I've only ever worked on one other production, so I've got absolutely no way, which is this show. I've got no way of, of knowing whether this is, it was normal, but it was just, it felt like it was, it felt like we were, tr- we were really, really doing something special. And I, I felt, I felt proud of the cast. I felt proud of the crew every day. I felt proud of Conrad, Brad, and I felt really confident as this, despite why I probably said to you, Andy, I, I did I didn't feel confident about what we played. You've correctly identified yourself in the story. Yeah. Like um, you, you, you got up to get another pie and Conrad's like, you're going to love it. It's so good. <laughs> so in the intervening time between when season one ended and season two begins, obviously we've had a pandemic. There's also been, I think an explosion of interest in the world of finance probably doing no small part to your show, but also like you came out, I came out of COVID and everybody I knew was talking about like Adam Tooze's newsletter all of a sudden. And, you know, we're getting into digital finance and all this other stuff. And I kind of wonder whether or not that increased interest spurred you guys to drop the, like really drop the gauntlet and be like, you guys thought we had jargon last season. (laughs) Fucking strap it on. Here we go. (laughs) Like, <laughs> because it's not even like I saw there was a vulture piece that was really good about like the sort of music of the dialogue and not always knowing what people were talking about. But you like there are points where you're like, I need Investopedia open while I am watching no, the show. I, I need Duolingo uh, open. I, 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 episode two was just like watching a foreign film that I was enjoying for large swaths of it. And I loved it. That's really funny you say that because I, you know, I, we did some, some press before the show came out. I mean, Conrad kept talking about the fact that we've made the uh, yeah, the dialogue and the fire line jargon in season one was um, impenetrable. We made it way more decipherable. We've held the audience's hand. You know, we've got a couple of people yeah. playing, a couple of things, explaining things. And then weirdly, Andy, I actually watched a little bit of episode two today. And honestly, I was like, how the fuck is anyone going to No, look, I, I, I can't <laughs> sugarcoat this. worse than last I, time. <laughs> I, I, this is the beauty of industry. So again, we're not spoiling it. People have a treat awaiting them on Monday. But like, the last 15 minutes of episode 202 is just like transcendent. It is ecstatic. I loved it. It was one of the most thrilling things I've seen on TV this year. I didn't understand a fucking word. I don't know. (laughs) I cannot overstate how little I understand what they're talking about. And I don't mind. And it actually leads me to a kind of conceptual question I had for you guys, which is inspired by watching your show, which is, what What is money? What did you do with your money? (laughs) No, what is money? And I mean that literally, and I'm not asking you guys to, so like, this is not clickbait to get you to be like, money doesn't matter. Like money matters in people's lives, of course. But for these characters who operate in this world, what even is it? Because in the scene that we're referring to, characters are like, I'll pay this much for quid. No, I'm buying dollars and I'll pay you for more dollars tomorrow if you give me a hamburger now, but also I'm hanging up. I, I don't know what they're saying. But so what is it? Money is love. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, there you go. But money's love. No, no, no. I, 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 a, 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 a less try answer is, I mean, just to go back to that sequence you're talking about at the end of 202, that was when me and Mickey first sold the pilot of the show to HBO, we wrote, there's a scene at the end of episode one where Harper trades for the first time and we wrote in that script. She makes this, uh, the sale to Nicole, right? She, Correct. Yeah. We wrote in that script that the, the, the following unfolds like a car chase. And we never actually made good on that promise with, with that script. And me and Mick were like, okay, we have to do our equivalent. We always want, and as stupid as it sounds, we always wanted to do a trading sequence that felt like an action sequence. And so we were like, we need to do our version of like, if, I mean, this is, this is very high praise, but it was, it, it, and, and not like 
not necessarily our benchmark, but we were like, what if Michael Mann was doing a trading show? How, how, how detailed and how difficult would the sequence be? And we were like, okay, so let's make this feel like a bank robbery. Is that possible when people are talking on a phone? And I mean, I'm not saying necessarily we got there, but like the amount of obstacles we threw at Harper and the amount of cutting and the way it was shot. And like, it was, it's very close to what we initially envisaged the kind of high point emotionally and energetically of the show being. So either you guys liked it is fantastic to us because it really was for, for like going back into that in season two, I would say it's one of our top three highlights. Wouldn't you say, Mick? Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's credit to everyone involved in that sequence from the directors, Birgitta Stemosa and, um, Eric Mulberry Hansen with the DOP and I mean the editor on that I mean like it was a it was a very very tricky thing to to achieve trying to make a trading sequence for like a car chase <laughs> especially when no one understands it's, it's quite easy to understand what's going on in a car chase where one car is chasing the other and in this one someone was talk, calling a um, FX um, an FX uh, uh, desk to find out if a current client had sold some Noki which no, I, I doubt anyone even knows what Nokia is. It's a pasta yeah. to most people. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you, you literally could be making all of this up and that's the beauty of it. It's fine. But again, going back to your what is money question, I actually was thinking, I was not thinking about that exact question today, but I was thinking more about in the, just in the, in the, in the context of a show and actually what the character actually wants. And I was actually thinking, yeah. why do they want money so much? Because, we were thinking about, I, I don't know, I was talking to you, Conrad, about this, but like, you never actually see them spending it, ever. Like, yeah. you actually or, or, or enjoying it, yeah, right. The only person enjoying her money is Yasmin, who had it pre the show. So, um, and, and I mean, you never see Harper buying any clothes, you never see Harper go on holiday, you never see Robert doing anything with his money at all. No one actually uses money in this, in this show, which I thought was actually quite interesting. And I feel like, I guess it's not really about, I mean, we've spoken about broadly about the show being a sort of exploration of, a certain type of person that makes money the North Star of their life. But it's actually, I guess, when money is totally and inextricably linked to ambition. And it feels just like it's the arena that sets the heart beating the most. And I feel like that's why people go into it. So I've gone off your question. I, think, I guess what no, I'm no, saying no, is... That's a good, really good answer. I, no, I totally agree with that. But it's also like, on the floor, these people are kind of allowed to act as their most tr- the most true versions of themselves. It's almost like that's what they've been paid to do in the first place. I think there's even a line in two about like your alpha stuff works if you're delivering, but if you're not, it's it's actually like a basically an HR violation. And <laughs> it's like, but you everybody's sort of insecurities and vulnerabilities and also their strengths and their their character traits are on complete and full display. I mean, even the introduction of the loudspeaker. Uh, I, which I don't think was in season one, right? Where like you can Harper so a couple good. of times starts talking into a microphone that the entire floor can hear. I mean, what's more naked than that? Than having an office conversation on a loudspeaker is crazy. Yeah, I think I think charting how much of their real selves is on display and how much of it is performative is really di- it's different character character. So I think you know, I think one of the moments that I find most powerful in the first episode is is the one where Robert finally drops the act when he calls Nicole. Cause it's like, Oh, he's gonna, he's gonna allow, I mean, me and Mickey talked about the second season a lot in the writer's room. We were like, what is the central question of this season? And it's, you know, we created what viewers thought was a very cold world. What is the possibility of vulnerability and connection in this world between people? Are they ever going to be at the same point in their arcs or their journeys or their, their own relationships, their self-worth, where they'll be able mm-hmm. to connect. And I think the power of season two for us with me, me and Mickey, we was, all, we was always like, 
all of these characters are ready and willing to be vulnerable, but they're always just going to miss these connections with each other because they're not going to be they're not going to be in the scene at the same time to allow that thing to happen, to allow the possibility of being their true selves. So I would argue we see true Harper, we see true Yasmin, we see true Robert, we see true Eric, we see all of these characters and we do see them vulnerable and we see what they really feel about themselves, but we never see it. We never see them interact in the same scene and show that thing together. And I think yeah. that, po- that, that possibility of misconnection is kind of, people always say to us like, what is Harper and Eric's relationship about? And me and Mickey are always like, they're like, is it as simple as mentor, mentee, father, daughter? Is it this thing? For us, it's always that, are they, are they going to sleep together? Are they going to kill each other? Do they want to kiss? Do they want to hug? It's always that unspoken thing of when we want to tell each other our true nature, but we're never going to, we have too big an armor up to ever do that. And um, I think and one I of think the, that's su- the kind of, yeah, sorry, sorry to jump on you, Connor. I just want to say, I think one of the successes of season two thus far is that you're working with directors who notice the missed connections. The camera is always on the actor in a way that I've been, I've been really compelled by so that when Harper behaves in a certain way, you cut to Eric taking it in. And there are moments of vulnerability in those cutaways as well. But again, she's on a call or he's angry at someone else. And so it, you, you reinforce it with the visual language of the show in a, and I think a more intentional way this season that's really coming through. Understanding the inner life of the characters through the filmmaking was one of the first conversations we had about how to change the show. Um, because, you know, this metaphor that we always torture uh, is that the first season felt a little bit like watching the characters through a fishbowl, you know, like almost like going, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, wow, they're, they're behaving crazily over there. <laughs> That's kind of interesting. There's a vibe to that. But then uh, you didn't really, I mean, but this, and, and because we were so in the presence as well in the, in the first season, I just, just think the motivations for that behavior, the actual fear, the wounds in those characters didn't really feel like they were coming through that much. And like, just like, I mean, simple things like getting close to the characters, actually physically closer with the camera, helped massively. And the thing you were saying, Andy, actually, you know, actually allowing in the editing to gauge a bit more of the other characters' reaction to them without actually just like steamrolling over to the next scene mm-hmm. or to the next insult or the next barb really, really helps. And yeah, I feel like I, I, the, characters, the characters are able to show vulnerability in this season in the way they weren't before. And a lot of that, I don't know. I don't want to spoil anything, but a lot of those those moments of vulnerability when the characters are alone, which probably says more to the people they're hanging out with um, in the show than 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 they than they than themselves. Is this the time to talk about Rishi and Hillary's mask? Like, I like I, I don't I don't know. If, I don't want to like take over the rest of our time together, but talk about vibes. Like the decision making of how to empower your brilliant supporting cast and like how. <laughs> When to let them have the screen and hold the thing? Like, like, like the, the dude only wearing a mask. I feel like production-wise, that may have presented some issues and maybe the actor had some feelings about it. But it is so deeply and consistently and reliably funny that I love it. And again, we're speaking ahead of ourselves, but Rishi, who makes a big impression in the first episode, really takes control of the narrative for large chunks of season of episode two in a way that is so fulfilling and really great. He's excellent. I mean, he, he really just took the bull by the horns. Like... You know, he's in a bit of season one, but Sagaradia, the the, um, the actor, he, he and we spoke to him before, and he was asking about us just sort of when we were writing it, like, how much am I going to be in it? I'm, I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, and we thought, okay, well, you know what? We love the character. Let's just throw everything at him and see if what he can do. And because you know, the benefit of actually only starting to starting to go into production after you're you know, halfway through the writing process is that when something reveals itself to be excellent, mm, you can just yeah. remore it. Four episodes in when we realized he was really, really good and we started shooting it, we just like, 
everything, which is why he's in it a lot in the back half of the season. But he's, I mean, he's we, absolutely brilliant. We were also very conscious. I mean, we were lying. We said we weren't very conscious. There was a very good um, Financial Times article about how Rishi was one of the most, most interesting characters in the show, even though he was on the sidelines because he was a depiction of a British Asian man but without any of the usual stereotypical hang-ups mm. normally put on those characters, like their relationship to whatever, their Britishness or their home, you know, where they come from. And his, I think his, his alphaness, bravado and confidence is all the stuff that Cigar read that piece and we read that piece and we really responded it to it. And we sort of doubled down on making him the kind of, the, 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 you know, well, the alpha male of the show, really. And I think I mean, I, it's everything Mickey said, like Cigar just... Took, I mean, we gave him some of the chewiest, funnest dialogue and he just, he over-delivered really, which was amazing to, to our ears. By far the funniest thing about the first episode is like the realization that everyone is pretty much friends with him except for Harper. <laughs> when she's just like, wait, what do you mean? Like you guys are all going to his drinks? Like, <laughs> But it also speaks to like her isolation, which I think is really great. But it was so funny when she was just like, uh, yeah, I wasn't invited. <laughs> That's yeah, cool. I mean, we, we, kind of, we made a, a bit of a virtue of that because on the on the it was I don't know why this happened, but some, for some reason Yasmin was going to those drinks, and I don't think we ever wrote her as going to them. I think we just wanted to get all the actors into that space. Yeah, and then me and were thinking like when we were shooting it, like why are Yasmin and Rishi friends? <laughs> <laughs> actually, no interaction together. But actually, Chris, what you said it really helps. It's like you cut that shot, and Yasmin is like bringing a bottle of champagne, like sh- like hugging someone. It's like oh god, like. It really helps with Harper's isolation. Harper's thinking like, I've been out a year and like Yasmin and Rishi are like best buddies. But, but also it, it, it underscores stuff that you've already laid. Like that's the best stuff in story, right? When it's like you didn't intentionally lay the track, but it's there. And it's baked into the show that Yasmin is just more socially comfortable and socially mm-hmm. fluid and she can get away with more and she knows how to build relationships and not have to like worry about them or stress about them. And and I, I think that was really well played in you know, the intentional dislocation you gave us in season two, which I was talking about, you know, the other day on the pod, which is just like, oh, you know, no, you, you talked about how you found some traditional story beats and story logic and found some comfort in that and structure in that. But I think starting the show in a place where these characters aren't friends and haven't used the time off to get closer was pretty radical. You know, it, it was disconcerting because I think our TV brains are like, boy, we went through a journey with these guys and okay, we did a lot of cocaine, but now we're pals. <laughs> and it's like, life doesn't necessarily work like that. These people don't have to be best friends. Well, and they're this also not like, they're not like, we're going to cure COVID. Like they're, they're still who they are, right? <laughs> like <laughs> those kinds of, those kinds of elisions, I think are, uh, are far more, far more filmic and cinematic than mm. they are in TV. And I think, I, I, I totally hear you, Andy. I think, me and Mick were very conscious of the fact that we wanted to start everybody in it. Not, not, not to dislocate the viewer so much, but just in a place where we just thought it was interesting development to start, you know, Robert's a very good example because he starts almost, you know, sober. He feels almost like a 180 degree turn from where he was at the end of, of episode eight of season one. But then, you know, you, it's not like, sometimes I think that was a really big jump, but then like he does have that scene with Daria, you know, where his nose starts to bleed in the riff speech and she's like, you're a cokehead. You know, that would give him something to ruminate on. But we just thought it's practically, in a really cynical way, we just thought it was more interesting to, to jump people back into a place where the characters had jumped forward. We just mm-hmm. thought everyone would be like, oh, okay, there's a bit of catch-up to play, but it also gives the actors something else to play. It, it immediately, you know, from a, just a, from a very cynical point of view, makes everything feel a bit fresh. We had the organic break of COVID as well. Like, we actually was a bit of a godsend because, you know, we, we had this idea of pushing it a year forward and we thought, okay, without that, organic break and that sort of forced isolation 
how would we do that? I mean, you know, there would be you'd be even more dislocated if you came back with the floor and Harper was there and everyone was being mean to her, but it was not explained why. And again, like the COVID thing was, we we, we sort of ummed and nahed about whether to include it or not. And yeah, obviously there was one part of our brain which was saying, no one wants to watch eight hours of this COVID thing, uh, which I don't think they would have. You know, if we had set the whole thing during you know during actual pandemic, it, w- it would have been terrible. But the other part was like, how do we actually make this feel like it's speaking? To you know, contemporary working life. Um, yeah, it's happening the, in the world, right? Yeah, exactly. And the most interesting thing about it is that how it's affected, affected people. And people have had hugely different reactions to it. Like everyone had very different pandemics, especially in London. You know, some people took the rules very, very seriously um, and didn't go out at all and didn't see their friends or family. And other people, usually from a different socioeconomic background, behaved very, very differently. Like, you know, which is what, you know, people, you know, people said like, I think Marisa had this idea. She was said, you know, she read the script page for the first first couple of episodes. She said, "Wow, Yasmin's doing a lot of drugs. Like, when did that happen?" She was sort of with <laughs> a wallflower um, before, and I said, "Well, she's she's had a pandemic where all she's done, as she said in episode four, is go from enormous kitchen to enormous kitchen, quote unquote, seshing with you, you know, her rich European friends, and she's been in this bubble where everyone's very social, everyone's very very coked up, everyone's very sure of themselves and confident." And then she comes into the world and she sees Harper and she realizes, and it's sort of, and, and, and Kenny comes back and she's just immediately transported to the version of her that existed at Pierpont without that. Again, obviously Harper's had a huge amount of isolation. She's been sitting in the hotel room for a year, thinking that she's doing a really, been doing a really good job when in fact the cold water is about to be poured on her when she comes back to work and realizes that her 12 hours a day has been, you know, as Richie says, very eloquently, just walking around the hotel room, attacking herself and doing coffee. <laughs> what emboldened us as well was the fact that there was no, there was no homogenous experience of COVID for everybody. So, like, we were like, anything that we put on screen, character-wise, is going to feel true because every, you know, every, as Mickey's just said very articulately, like, it, it was, it was a very, it could be very local. It felt it was global, obviously, by social media, but like. Everyone was, you know, countries were having different responses at different rates, masks, mandates, all this stuff was changing so much. We just, so we just thought any, you know, if Wyndham's wearing a mask and everybody else isn't, I'm sure there's a workplace somewhere on earth at some point in the last oh, yeah. two years where it, felt, where it felt exactly like that. So all of our creative decisions, we were like, if we did it with a light touch, people would feel, you know, if, if, as long as it didn't drive plot too much, people wouldn't be bored by it. It would just feel like, oh, it, it's, it's in the universe of the show. You know, the, these guys are acknowledging it, but they're not making it the kind of the, the North Star of what they're trying to do with the second season. Also, as Chris and I both individually, but personally experienced, the shadow of COVID in the UK currently is not as long as it is in some other places. That was <laughs> as, I saw some of the critics say, say, oh God, the, the, the most striking thing about this is there's only one person wearing a mask on the trading floor. Now, I honestly think if you went to training floor now, zero people would yeah. be wearing a mask in London. Like, I, mean, um, I, I didn't see anyone wearing a mask in London. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I don't wear a mask in the airport. But, that, again, Con- Conrad, the thing you said about like about Robert and the idea that you know he's done a, almost a one eighty in his personality from this party boy to this you know almost monk. Um, I feel like if you if if you're young and someone says the kind of comment to you that Darius says in that lift, and then you're immediately put into a situation where you're isolated for a, a year. You stew on that kind of thing. And you think, God, is that, is that the person I think? I think Harper's been doing the same thing. Harper's been stewing on her relationship with Yasmin. And Yasmin's been doing her best to push it to one side. 
And as much as you say, you know, people have moved on, I don't think about it anymore. I still think she's been thinking, she's got that version of Harper, the one that got rid of Dare, the one that felt is a bit Machiavellian and, you know, almost, you know, fucked her career up in some ways. She's got that sort of ingrained in her, you know, frozen in time in her. And I feel like, totally. you know, You've kind of shattered my illusions about Yasmin because I thought maybe she had spent the pandemic watching the 100 greatest horror films and had just, you know, gotten through the descent. <laughs> It was just like making her way through Carpenter next and stuff. Just really having a super chill last two years. Me and Conrad discussed that line before. <laughs> You're talking about the favorite film being The Descent, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I put that line in. Let me put that line in. And Nick was like, do you think she's old enough to use that as a reference point? And I was like, it's a fuck. It's, it's a, you know, it's, there's no reason why she can't have binged it on a hangover. I love know? it. I love it. It just makes yeah. me want to hang out with her even more. Um, we don't want to take up any more of your guys' time because we'll have you on at least one more time, if not two, uh, throughout the season to talk more about the season as more people get to see more episodes. Do you guys want to like, I I don't want to put you on the spot for it, but you said you were asking yourselves what the question of the season was. You know, this is going to air this week. People are about to see episode two, which we love. Oh yeah. Anything you want to put in people's heads, like in terms of what what to come or what a question to consider going forward might be? It's a great question. Thanks. And, and and also I wish sometimes I wish this pod was video because it was literally like Siri, what does it look like to put someone on the spot? <laughs> it was amazing. We, you guys oh, can, sure. you can leave it as like the HBO Max uh like text where it's like Harper makes a decision. Eric yeah. reacts. You know, like <laughs> I don't know. Is, is is it worth it? Is it worth it? I like that. That's good. Um I don't I mean season I I would just say without you know any big season tease, um the episode two is 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 um is my like me and Mickey we you know we go back and forth about what our favorite episodes of the season are and we feel like in terms of what we were trying to set out to do with the show in terms of the balance between personal work all of those things coming together is we feel like it's maybe the best example yet of the show so we're really looking forward to it coming out. Episode seven as well is absolutely brilliant. I will say that. <laughs> Who's confident now? Yeah. There it is. <laughs> guys, as well. thank you so much for coming on. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having us, guys. <laughs>